0: This morning we're going to be, uh, begin looking at the life of Abraham. Yesterday we established, I, I hope, um, that we're living in the last days. We're not setting times; We don't have a message of definite time, but we're living in the last days. And, and as, I, as I study um, the Bible, I'm more and more convinced that God has a special work and a special experience for those who live in the last days. Um, he's called us to be a part of His last day remnant people. To give a special message to the world, and it may seem a little odd that we could go all the way back to the to the far reaches of the the post uh, flood uh, era, I guess you might say, and and find someone that would be an an uh, an example for us to follow, someone whose life we can we can find so many uh, so much instruction in. But yet, I'm convinced more and more that Abraham is in fact the father of the end time faithful. Now. Um, I was trying to figure out how I could cover what I want to cover in the next couple of mornings, um, a few mornings that we have together uh, as I talk about Abraham. So I've sort of condensed a bit here. We're going to have to spend a little bit of time just establishing why I call Abraham the father of the end time faithful. Um, But the the story is that Abraham believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. This is an amazing story of faith, what Abraham um, believed How Abraham believed in God and God counted it to him for righteousness. Now, Paul uses this story in Romans chapter 4, and he he uses it to illustrate the fact that we're not justified or forgiven or made righteous because of anything we do, but because of our belief in God, God makes us righteous. And so he establishes the fact. Now, we, don't, we won't take the time to go through Genesis 15, 16, 17, but basically, um, Paul's using the argument. Uh, he says, Was Abraham counted righteous after he obeyed and was circumcised, or before he, was ob- before he obeyed and was circumcised? And the biblical record suggests, it say, states that, that it was before, in fact, it's several chapters before the circumcision, the obedience, and all these outward uh, signs of his faithfulness. Um, were reality Abraham believed in God and he counted it to him for righteousness now why is that important for us today well he goes on in chapter 5 and verse 1 he says therefore and we could spend a whole time just talking about therefore Um, when you see a therefore in the Bible you have to ask yourself what's it there for right and um, chapter 5 and verse 1 is it's an artificial chapter division you understand Paul didn't write letters and say oh chapter 1 chapter 2 and chapter 3 just like we don't write letters I don't think like that. Um, and so, uh, Paul, has, Paul is just continuing on. And when he says, therefore, he says, look, based upon what I've just said about Abraham being fully persuaded that what God was able to do, uh, God had promised to do, he was able also to perform. And therefore, it was counted to him for righteousness. Based upon that experience, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, being justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I tell you, friends, I, you know, I, I, am a Seventh Day Adventist Christian. I'm proud to be a Seventh Day Adventist. I love being a part of God's remnant people with a, a special message for the last days. I believe God's called us to obedience. I mean, there's the the the, there's a, the, the, the people in the last days who are who I believe are uh, described as. As, uh, as the faithful, the 144,000, um, when Satan says, okay, God, um, where's the evidence that your law is just and fair and that you, your character is, is righteous and that you can both forgive and empower and that, you can, that, that, that your law can be kept in humanity? I believe God's going to point to a people and say, here's the patience of the saints. Here are they who, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. I want to be a part of that people. They're an obedient people no question about it. But friends, I I think it's a human tendency, not an Adventist tendency. It's a human tendency to try to have a religion that is based upon our works. Steps Christ says the proud heart strives to earn salvation, but both our title to heaven and our fitness for it is found in the righteousness of Jesus. And so I can't remind myself often enough, I'm not downplaying obedience, but I'm saying salvation comes through Jesus Christ. Sometimes we te- we're tempted to get the cart before the horse. And um, I found this in my own experience. I've come to the point where sometimes I, 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 I catch myself um, thinking, okay, well, I'm going to obey. I'm going to do better so that God will love me you know um, um, I want to be saved and, and somehow I try to say well I'm supposed to live this kind of life so I'm going to I'm going to conform my life to what's expected of me I'm an Adventist I'm a pastor I'm a teacher and whatever and so I'm, I'm supposed to live this life I should live this life and I conform myself to what people expect and it's almost as if we try to experience sanctification without first experiencing justification it's a miserable existence it's like it's like pushing a wet noodle you know um, it, it, the, the cart before the horse doesn't work very well and, um, it, and sanctification on my own without first, I mean sanctification is I think most simply defined as living in, staying in an abiding relationship with Jesus, living in a justified state, well if you're not already in that state you can't live that way and try as we might it's impossible and so the story of Abraham teaches us Paul uses it to teach us the truth about justification by faith. In order to live the Christian life, we have to first become a Christian. That miracle that we are lost without, we have to experience. And then we can begin. We can't just start doing the rituals and the forms and the ceremonies. We need Jesus to transform our hearts, to justify us, to make us right. As, as it says in Steps to Christ, when when... when When we give our lives to him and accept him as our savior, then sinful as our life may have been, for his sake we are accounted righteous. His character stands in place as our character, and he looks upon us just as if we had not sinned. That's justification. That's Christ page 62. I paraphrased a little bit there. Um, So... We need that experience before we can have the Christian life. This is what Paul says. I think it's Colossians 2, verse 6. Says He says, um, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, that's justification, right? As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. So we can't walk in him without first receiving him, right? And so Abraham teaches us all these things. Uh, Genesis 15, 6, quoted several times in, Gen- in Romans chapter 4. He believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now let's, let's notice here in Romans chapter 4, if you have your Bibles there, um, I love this passage because it's just a powerful, a powerful presentation. Ellen White uh, says that um, for the book of um, for the letter of Paul to the Romans, every Christian has reason to thank God. Um, it's just a wonderful exposition on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And um, in Romans chapter 4, there's, there's two references here of, of Abraham becoming a father. It says in verse 17 and 18, first of all, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickens the dead, and call those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Now here, Paul is referring to the literal uh, ancestry of many nations. Um, Abraham would become the father of many nations and um, his his descendants would be as the sand of the sea ashore as the stars of the night sky remember go out Abram and, and count the stars and see if you can number them that's the way your descendants are going to be but notice that it's not just it's not just the literal uh, forefather of many nations in verse 11 it says he received the sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised that he might be the the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. Very interesting here. Abraham was not just to become the progenitor and the father of many nations, literally the Jews and others. Abraham was to become the spiritual father of all who would believe. Isn't that amazing? That's you and me. And I propose that he's the spiritual father of even all who would believe in the last days. Um, we become the spiritual descendants of Abraham. Um, Some of you have sung that song. When I was a kid, I thought it was just a really silly, sort of uh, foolish song, you know. I mean, it's fun to sing, but it didn't have a lot of meaning to me when I sang, Father Abraham had many sons, you know. Many sons has Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. And, you, you know, left foot, right foot, right arm, left arm, chin up, chin down, turn around, sit down, all that. And, um, and it's, it's silly, as active. I mean, kids need active songs, I understand. But I, the import didn't strike me until much later when I realized that Abraham is the father of all the, those who believe. Now, what does this mean when we talk about spiritual ancestry? I love this. I I get really excited about this because it's, some, it's so clear in the Bible what it really means. Let's look at some Bible passages here. A couple of things that we're going to see are, are um, inferred or very strongly taught through this concept of spiritual ancestry. One of the clearest passages is the teaching of Jesus in John chapter 8. And you remember the story how um, this is a a discussion that's taking place between the Jews who believed in Jesus and Jesus. Now, it's hard to imagine that this is actually the Jews who believed in Jesus because they're having some trouble together getting along uh, even though these are the good Jews. Um, But that's what it says. Uh, Verse 31, uh, then Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, Um, remember in John chapter 6, there had been a, a testing, a sort of a shaking time. I mean, that teaching of Jesus of uh, eating my flesh and drinking my blood, right? And many of Jesus' followers, the majority of Jesus' followers, had gone away. In fact, so many left that Jesus turned to His twelve and said, Are you also going to leave? Yeah? There's a shaking going on. John chapter 8, though, there's another little bit of a, a fracas here that takes place, erupts between Jesus and those who believe in Him. Jesus says, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now, they were offended by this saying. And they said in verse 33, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Now, um, I'm not sure what they were talking about here, because if they knew their Jewish history, Abraham's children were in Egyptian bondage for 400 years. Um, they themselves were subserving to the Romans at this time. But um, they're taking offense, and they're saying, We're Abraham. Abraham's our father. You see what they're doing here? They're looking at the literal lineage of their ancestry, and they're saying, hey, we're the good guys, okay? We be the, uh, we're church members. I mean, uh, if you want to put this in today's context, you know, we're, we're Adventists. We're not, we're not part of Babylon. What are you talking about? Do you continue in my work? We're Adventists. We pay our tithe. We go to church on Sabbath. We eat our Veggie Links. We are... We are Abraham's children. And, and they actually took, they actually, as, as mind-boggling as it might be to us, because we don't bring it down to our situation, um, they actually took spiritual pride in being the literal descendants of Abraham. And I, I say it's mind-boggling just because we don't, it should be more by mind-boggling when we realize that we actually do the same thing, don't we? I mean, I do. I tend to get comfortable because I'm, you know, I'm a part of the remnant people. And um, like the Jews of old who said, we have the temple. These guys are saying, we have Abraham. Jesus doesn't let up, though. Verse 34, "Verily verily I say to you, whoever commits sin is a servant of sin. The servant abides not in the house forever, but the son abides forever. If the son, therefore, will make you free, you shall be free indeed i know that you are abraham's seed now here Abra- uh, jesus recognizes the literal ancestry of abraham you see that um, keep that in mind because a little later he's going to say you're not abraham's seed <laughs> so there's evidently there's more than one way to be abraham's children as we've already seen. I know you're Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. What's he talking about? Now, these people evidently, I mean, verse 31 tells us these are the Jews who believed on Jesus, but Jesus knew that even among those who were following him still... There were those who would not continue in his word. Remember, that's what he says to start this whole discussion off. If you continue in my word, then you'll be my disciples indeed. He knew that many of those in that group would just a few weeks later be crying with a mob in Caiaphas court. Crucify him. Crucify him. He knew their hearts better than they even knew their own hearts. You're seeking to kill me, he said. They're like, what are you talking about? Abraham is our father, they said. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. So here you have a definition of what a spiritual descendant is. A spiritual descendant is one who does the works of their spiritual ancestor, right? Right? That's the that's the uh, that's the definition here of a spiritual answer. If you are Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who told you the truth, and, uh, have, and I have which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. And then they they're getting angry, so they get they start sort of you know getting low down and dirty, and they say we're not born of fornication. <laughs> now You know what they're insinuating by that. Friends, if these are the followers of Jesus, I don't know, I don't know how. We have one God, one Father, even God. And Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me for I proceeded forth and came from him, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. The lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. So here, Jesus here lays out the, um, the, the, the definition, you might say, of what a spiritual ancestor is. We do the works of our spiritual ancestors. Let's get a, a couple other verses real quick that um, also touch on this concept of spiritual ancestry. It's not just that we, uh, it's not just the fact that we do the works of our father. There's also uh, in here some uh, truth to the fact that we are credited with the works of our father our spiritual ancestors um, hebrews chapter 7 verses 9 and 10 this is the story of of uh, remember abraham when he paid tithes um, after the the battle with the kings and he paid tithe to melchizedek this is what um, paul says about it he says as and as i may so say levi also who received tithes paid tithes in abraham for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, this is the principle we're talking about here. The principle is that when we are, when we are in a spiritual family, we are credited with the works that our spiritual ancestor did. This is very interesting because, um, because a, Levi was nowhere near the scene of action when Abraham brings the tithes to Melchizedek. He wasn't a twinkle in his great-grandfather's eye i mean he was he wasn't he was so far removed you can't imagine that he was somehow there um, but yet paul says he was there well how was he there well levi was well, he's using this example of spiritual ancestry when we choose to join the spiritual ancestry we become a part of a rich heritage and that heritage is allotted to us as well we inherit the promises as well as the the victories of our spiritual ancestors, this is a powerful principle here. And the reason it's so powerful is because of what we read in Romans chapter five. Because I, I know I'm talking here about Father Abraham, but ultimately there's an even more important spiritual lineage that you and I become a part of when we talk about spiritual ancestry. We talk here in Romans chapter five and verses 18 and 19. Um, you're not going to find verse 29 there. I'm sorry. It's a typo. Um, But verses 18 and 19, it says, therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Whose offense of one is that talking about? That's Adam. So we all became sinners. We all became destined to to make poor choices ourselves. We all became destined to the first death, uh, temporal death, which Without Christ would be the second death, wouldn't it? So uh, we might as well have all been dead just because of Adam's sin. And, uh, but notice it doesn't stop there. The judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one. Who's that righteousness of one? That's Jesus Christ, even by the righteousness of one, uh, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now, the beautiful truth that Paul is trying to teach here, as I understand this passage, is that when Adam sinned, we all, without our own participation or without our own um, choice, we became a part of this fallen race destined to death, destined to sin ourselves, we have no choice. I mean, Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall—they could actually, on their own, make the right choices. On their, their their natural state was such that their higher powers were in, in, um, in, uh, in control of their lower powers. When sin happened, that that apple basket got upset, and now our lower powers are. are are controlling our higher powers. Even if we want to do, our reason, our intellect conscious wants to do what's right, we can't of ourselves do what's right. We have to have a miracle of divine power. Now, that upset is the result of Adam's sin. We have no choice. We're lost. But thankfully, there was a second Adam. Thankfully, there was someone who came and overcame where Adam failed. He walked the same ground. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He, uh, he, he overcame, and He condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus Christ came, and, and this is the amazing thing. Because there are now two Adams, there's the first Adam and the second Adam, the Adam who sinned, the Adam who overcame, you and I have a choice of which family, which spiritual family we're going to belong to, Right? And that that uh, that choice takes place through what we call a new birth. When we're born again, we're born. Well, when we're born, we're always born into a family, right? Aren't you glad God didn't make us uh, where we're hatched on some beach somewhere with our mothers long gone? Um, God made us in the image of God with the with with relationships, right? That's the very part of the image of God. We have a longing and a desire and a natural need for relationships. And God put us not, not on a beach somewhere, but He put us in a family when we're born. And, and, and unlike a, a, you know, a, other animals that a few hours from birth can already be standing and walking, we need the, the care that only a mother can give. And, and, and so God made us this way. And, and when we're born again, we're born into a new family. And friends, when we're born again into the family of Jesus Christ, the second Adam, He becomes our spiritual ancestor. and Just like Levi got credit for paying tithes in Abraham's bosom, you and I get credit for the righteousness of Jesus because he's our spiritual father now. And and by the way, the works of our father we will do, right? So we know whose descendants we are, whose spiritual descendants we are, by the lives which we live. We examine ourselves, we prove whether we're in the faith by the lives which we live. And as we open the Word of God, we compare our lives with what His will is for our lives, we realize whether where we need to grow and where we need to be born again on a regular basis, on a new and deeper way. And so, born again into the new family of God, we become the spiritual descendants of Jesus. And his work gets credited to our account. So this is the concept of spiritual ancestry. Are you with me on that? This is what I want to establish. Now, Abraham was called the father of all who believe, and that's what we're focusing on today. We could focus on the, on the spiritual ancestry of Jesus, but he's also well known as our older brother. So today, we're going to just focus on a couple of characteristics of Abraham, two characteristics of Abraham. As he is our spiritual father, if we are among the faithful in the last days, we're going to do the works of Abraham, right? And so how did Abraham live? If we're going to be faithful in the last days, I believe um, we will we will be um, living as Abraham lived. Let's look in our Bibles back in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, where Abram's story begins. And um, I tend to sort of conflate Abram and Abraham because these early chapters, as you know, um, he's not Abraham yet. And um, and so I interchange them a bit. But in chapter 12, he's Abram. And so we're going to begin with verse one. Um, Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to, if you don't mind, just sort of keep a finger here in Genesis. And then um, also we're going to be flipping back and forth to Hebrews chapter 11 because Hebrews 11 gives us um, more reflection upon Abraham's experience. It says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house, unto a land that i will show thee and i will make of thee a great nation and i will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing now notice here that god is not yet promising the the land of canaan to abram abram hasn't even figured out where that is he doesn't know where he's going all abram has heard is you need to leave you need to leave this is a tough this is a very tough a very tough thing to hear now especially you have to understand Why is God doing this to Abraham? Well, you remember that not too long before, God had destroyed the earth with a flood, right? Because the wickedness of man was so great. It was to the point where all the true knowledge of God was about to be extinguished on earth, yet God found a man named Noah. And the Bible says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, right? And uh, so Noah an, uh, is tasked with building an ark. Um, he and his family are saved, only eight people. Um, they, they soon begin multiplying. And you can imagine that while Noah's there and the, the, the first generation of those who came off the door, out of the doors of that ark, you would think that they would follow God, the God of heaven. They would have learned their lesson. I mean, the wicked world was destroyed for their forgetfulness of God. And you would think that would have been enough for at least a generation or two, right? But I mean, almost immediately, they set out to, to, to build the Tower of Babel, to prevent uh, another flood from coming. Even though God put that rainbow in the sky that said, I do set my bow in the clouds, and it will be a covenant between me and you. I won't destroy the earth with a flood again. Um, but yet, nonetheless, here they're going to build their own. They're going to have salvation through works. That's really what what Babel and the Tower of Babel was all about. And so God confuses their language scatters them abroad. And um, once again, the world is becoming so wicked. God needs to do something to preserve the truth. Now, this is yet within the lifespan of Noah. As I recall, Noah and Abraham were contemporaries for about 75 years. Their lives overlapped. If you just look at the genealogies, as we can see, at least from the Bible. And so here you are, while, while, um, while a contemporary of those who came off the flood is living in Ur of the Chaldees God says I need I need you to leave because I need to do something to preserve truth you're too comfortable where you're at I need to make so he chose to begin what we call the system of patriarchs the system of patriarchs was simply where God would make a man responsible for teaching his truth to his family and particularly the firstborn son would be responsible for passing down that lineage and of course, the promise would be that the seed of the woman, the promise in Genesis 3:15, would come in the lineage of that that firstborn son, that patriarch. And so there would be the spirit; there would always be a spiritual leader that would preserve truth. That's how God purposed to have truth preserved during this area era of Earth's history. And Hebrews chapter 11. And verse eight, we see that um, this wasn't an easy thing for uh, Abraham to do. It says, "By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he would after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. He left all." Now, if we look back at the at the um, I'm sorry, if we look back at the uh, the experience of of Abraham, um, Ur of the Chaldees during this time was a a large city, at least for that uh, for that era, and it was also one of the wealthiest cities in that part of the world. Um, this is just an artist's rem- uh, uh, concept of what Ur may have looked like during some period. And um, from the beginning, because it was right there on the Persian Gulf, um, it was sort of where the where the rivers of, of the cradle of civilization flowed out, where the uh, the, uh, the Euphrates River and the Tigris Rivers joined the Persian Gulf. So it was a, it was a place of great trade. It was well strategically positioned. Um, archaeological uh, excavations have substantiated that early on Ur possessed great wealth and its citizens enjoyed a level of comfort that was unknown in other Middle Eastern cities. This was a, this was a comfortable place. By the way, they were also educated. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of the Gilgamesh epic. And um, if you've studied flood legends, um, but one of the flood legends, there's about 500 or so cultures that have flood legends um, that are strikingly simil- familiar, uh, similar, some 70 to 80% agreement in characteristics with the Bible story of the worldwide flood. And Gilgamesh Epic is one of those right there. It's on tablet 11 of the Gilgamesh Epic. There's a flood story, very similar to the flood story of, uh, of the Bible. But here Abraham is, is leaving... He, he's leaving a comfortable city behind. He's leaving a city where there's, where there's uh, opulence and wealth and comfort. He probably had a nice house. Um, his family, by the way, his family was there and it's hard to leave family, isn't it? And here he's, he's called to go out to a different place. And um, I, I think that Abraham is, is demonstrating for us something that we have to experience as well, and especially if we're going to be faithful in the last days. I want to share this passage with you from the Spirit of Prophecy. A union with Christ by living faith is enduring. Every other union must perish. Christ first chose us, paying an infinite price for our redemption. And the true believer chooses Christ as first and last and best in everything. But this union costs us something. It is a union of utter dependence to be entered into by a proud being, All who form this union must feel their need of the atoning blood of Christ. They must have a change of heart. They must submit their own will to the will of God. There will be a struggle with outward and internal obstacles. There must be a painful work of detachment as well as attachment. And what God is calling Abraham to do when he leaves the Ur of the Chaldees, he's calling Abraham to a work which I can imagine was a painful work of detachment, so that he could have an experience of attachment. Pride, selfishness, vanity, worldliness, sin, in all its forms must be overcome if we would enter into a union with Christ. The reason why many find the Christian life so deplorably hard, why they are so fickle, so variable, is that they try to attach themselves to Christ without first detaching themselves from these cherished idols. Wow. Have you ever felt that way? The Christian life is hard. Sometimes it's because we're putting the cart before the horse. We're trying to attach ourselves to Christ without first detaching ourselves. That's painful. There's an internal struggle between inward and and external circumstances. It's not easy. And Abraham here, he's faced with this difficult decision. How am I going to explain it to my family? God said, look, it doesn't matter if you explain it to your family. I need you to live a life that nobody will understand. Because you're going to be the father of the faithful of every generation, all those who believe. And there's some generations that have it pretty hard. You're going to set an example. I'm amazed as I look at the life of Abraham because I realize that what God called him to do, he called him to leave that which was comfortable, that which was familiar. He called him to leave his sort of support group and go out into a strange country, a new place, detached from every means of earthly support except his connection with God. If you look at the story of Abraham, I think you'll find, as I have, that Abraham had no peer. Do you hear what I'm saying? There was nobody who understood the experience of Abraham. There was nobody who could relate to his journey, his spiritual walk. He had a singular experience on the face of the entire earth. Even when God spoke to him, Genesis chapter, was it 22, when God speaks to him and says, Abraham, offer your, your son, your only son, whom you love, as a sacrifice. Who did Abraham quite intentionally avoid telling what was really going on? His own wife, right? Because Sarah did not have the spiritual experience that Abraham had. I don't think there was anybody who Abraham could look to as a peer and say, this is someone who understands, who's on a similar journey with me. You know, isn't it nice when you find someone who's on a similar journey? I mean, it's just so affirming, such a blessing. Abraham would live a life by faith. You know who his peer was? The Bible calls him the friend of God. Chew on that for a while. I mean, we want to have an experience with God, don't we? But do we want to have the, the painful work of detachment that this would require? Too often, we want to have our foot in both worlds, don't we? I'm speaking for myself. Struggle that, it, that I face. The reason why many find the Christian life so deplorably hard while they're so fickle, so variable is that they try to attach themselves to Christ without first detaching themselves from these cherished idols. So God is detaching Abraham from his cherished idols. And I, I have to bring it home to us. If we want to be the children of Abraham in the last days, he's going to have to do the same work in our hearts. He's going, we're going to need to let him separate us from those things which we would depend on instead of depending upon our relationship with Jesus Christ. We all will have that experience of standing alone. Notice with me again, from, I believe this is from Patriarchs and Prophets. The message of God came to Abraham. Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. In order that God might qualify him for his great work as the keeper of the sacred oracles, Abraham must be separated from the association of his early life. <clears throat> The influence of kindred and friends would interfere with the training which the Lord purposed to give His servant. Now that Abraham was in a special sense connected with heaven, he must dwell among strangers. His character must be peculiar, differing from all the world. He could not even explain his course of action so as to be understood by his friends spiritual things are spiritually discerned and his motives and actions were not comprehended by his idolatrous kindred so god said i need you to be separate i need you to leave that behind so that i can make of you the man that i want to make of you i want you to be the father of all who believe the father of the faithful in all ages even in the last days what a wonderful a wonderful story this life of Abraham is. Let's look back in the book of Hebrews, though, and um, keep your finger but still in Genesis 12 because we'll come back. But Hebrews chapter 11, is a, there's a powerful passage here. I love, I love the way Paul illuminates the life of, of Abraham and brings it down to, to us today. Hebrews chapter 11, we already looked at verse 8. Um, By faith, he obeyed. He went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he He sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Basically what we're saying here is that that Abraham realized that this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And so it's quite clear that while he left a well-developed, uh, advanced city in Ur of the Chaldees. He goes to live in tents, uh, traveling from place to place. If you read the life of Abraham, he's 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 sort of like a like an itinerant. Um, what do you call those types of tribes that move around a lot? Nomadic. Yes, nomadic tribe. Um, he, he's, he's, like an, oh, he's like a nomad who's moving from place to place. He has, doesn't have a place really to call his, his own. In fact, while God has promised this Canaan, this little promised land to him, it's not really to him. He never inherits it. His descendants later on would inherit it. And, and, and in fact, it didn't really matter to Abraham because he wasn't actually looking to inherit an inheritance here. He, what he was looking for was a, a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's what Abraham was looking for. He had a, he had a, 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 a pilgrim's mindset. He was not just a, a looking for God to bless him so he would be prosperous um, in this life, although God did do that. We'll look more about that in the next couple mornings, um, why God blessed him and how God blessed him and how God made him a, a, uh, an incredible um, power for, for teaching the truth of heaven to the to the world, um, Abram's household, um, patriarchs and prophets tells us, and we can pretty much confirm that through scriptural evidence. Abram's household came to comprise more than a thousand souls. It wasn't a household; it was a school, it was an institution, it was a training center where people learned about the true God, and people would actually attach themselves to Abram just because they wanted to know what he knew. They wanted the experience that he had. What an amazing story Abraham's story is. But if we flip back here to Genesis chapter 12 and we look in verse 10. Notice with me Genesis chapter 12 and verse 10. We, we see how Abraham, he didn't get comfortable. He didn't settle down because he was a stranger and a pilgrim. It says there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. This happened a couple of times. He goes down into Egypt He goes into the land of the Philistines. If we skip down to Genesis chapter 21, this is many, many, many years later. And uh, verse 34, it says, Abraham sojourned in the Philistines' land many days. And so Abraham, you see this sort of, this nomadic lifestyle. He's not able to call this world his home because it wasn't his home. He wasn't emotionally attached to it. He was a stranger and a pilgrim. He was just passing through. He had his eyes on a better place. He had his heart set on a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now I would propose to you friends today that there is, a, there is a, uh, there's something for us to do as well if we're the children of Abraham, right? We also need to have this kind of a mindset that, that we're just strangers, we're just pilgrims here. That doesn't mean that we don't do our very best to, to, um, to, uh, to be all that God can be here in this life, but it does mean that we don't set our hearts and our affections on this world. We don't get too comfortable here because we're just passing through. Um, We need to set our affections on the things which are above. Now, um, I love in Hebrews chapter 11, we flick back there again, and I want to go through a little bit of a a progression here that we see in these verses. Um, Talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Sarah and so forth. It says in verse 13, "...these all died in faith, not having received the promises." But having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now, I don't know about you, but I believe that you and I are also called to be strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Do you agree with that? Do you agree that we are called in these last days as children of Abraham to be strangers and pilgrims on the earth? Now, how are we going to do that? How are we going to experience that? I think that verse 13 actually holds a key. I like to see verse 13 as a progression of personal experience that we can have. You know, sometimes we read the promises of God. We read the Bible. We may, we may, we may think about the, the doctrine of the second coming, and it becomes just a doctrine to us, right? It becomes something we believe intellectually. Jesus is coming again. But the real does it stay a reality in our minds is it something that animates how we live our lives we think of heaven and we yes we know there's going to be a, you know a thousand years a millennium of of uh, 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 in in heaven, and then the New Jerusalem comes to planet Earth, and God recreates this Earth, and and we have our city home, and we get to build our country home. But sometimes it just it just fades into a dream. It's sort of something out there that's just so it's not really real. It's sort of ethereal. It's sort of just it's just sort of it's just it's out there. But it's it's sort of like a pie in the sky type of a thing, right? It's out there. It's, a, it's way out there somewhere. But we have our daily responsibilities and our duties and the things we have to do. And these are real things. You know, the dishes actually need to be washed. And, and the, the, you know, the, job, the work actually needs to be done. Our job actually needs to be accomplished. And there's a real deadline for our work and so forth. And, and the, what, what, what is real, what Abraham and Isaac and Jacob believed to be real becomes only sort of distant we might think, well, what's wrong with us? It's not. There's nothing wrong with us. In fact, I would propose to you verse 13 says "It's how it started with them too. The Bible says they saw the promises. What does it say? These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. It was like something on the horizon, something, something out there that they believed. Well, they believed it, but, but was it really something that they, they believed enough to live by? But notice what the next step says. It says that they actually, um, they, they, it says that they, having seen them afar off, were persuaded of them. Were persuaded of them. In other words, these men and women of faith came to the point where those far off promises were not just a fading dream of you know, some sort of uh, idealism or the Bible's romanticism but they actually came to see them as true. They were persuaded of them. And friends of mine, I'm going to suggest that all of us are at some point in this progression of verse 13. I know none of us have received the promises yet, right? So we're at least after number one. Um, But... We haven't received the promises, but for some of us, it's just, it's just sort of out there on the horizon as a, a distant intellectual ascent. But these men and women were persuaded of them. They actually came to the, fact, the, the point where they believed for a fact that even though it might be 4,000 years in the future, think of that, they believed Jesus was going to come again. And there was going to be a kingdom set up on this earth that they wanted to be a part of. Can you imagine that? I mean, God, they did not even have scriptures, they did not have the fulfillment of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 and Daniel 9. They did not have the life of Jesus to look at. They did not have the writings of the apostles to look at. We we may just be a few short years or a generation, I hope just a few short years, away from the return of Jesus, and yet it becomes a faded dream in our minds. Can you imagine living 4,000 years before the establishment of God's kingdom of peace on earth? Can you imagine? And yet they were persuaded of it they came to the point where they really believed that God meant what he said. Isn't that amazing? They were so convinced. Notice it's not just that they were persuaded of them, the next step is they embraced them. These are the promises we're talking about. They saw the promises afar of off, and at first they were just a. a it's just sort of a, a little bit of a mirage-like thing on the horizon. But they saw them afar off, and they actually came to the point where they believed they were true, where God is going to establish a kingdom. I want to be a part of it, they said. Those promises aren't just little ink on paper or, or legends passed down from our ancestor Noah. These are these are real truths that God is going to fulfill his word. He is going to do what he's promised to do, and we're going to be a part of that kingdom. And they embraced those promises. Promises once they were fully insu- persuaded of them. Once it came to the point where they really believed them, this is how they gained their strength. They embraced those promises. This was their identity. They embraced those promises. This is who they were and where they were going because of the promises of God. They lived and breathed and died by the promises of God. They embraced them and made their own. Them their own. You see, my friends, the Word of God is not just a collection of ideas that we can intellectually understand. The Word of god is meant to be our word they're meant to be it's meant to be the way we live our lives the bible says in was is it is it first corinthians uh chapter one or second Corinthians, it says all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ. When we read the Bible in Christ, when Christ is our spiritual ancestor, Abraham is our father, we read the promises of God and the Bible says that um, we become those who are Christ or Abraham seeds and heirs according to the promises, right? So we read those, those Bible promises. Those Bible promises are meant for me. Those promises are meant for Chester Clark. They're meant for you. You can put your name in the blank. And, and when it comes to the point where we, we believe the promises and they become our identity, they become the reason we live, the reason we get up in the morning, the reason we're, we're raising our children for God's kingdom, the reason we're going to work and advancing God's kingdom, when they become the very fabric of who we are, then we can, we can be, it can be said of us like it was said of these great men and women of faith, we have embraced those promises. Oh, I want to be there. I don't want to just see them afar off. They're they're there, they're intellectual, they they may be for somebody. I want to be so persuaded of them that I embrace them and make them my own. I want those promises to be my promises. They embrace them, and this led to the final step. Because they saw the the, the promises afar off, because they were fully persuaded of them, they embraced them, that enabled them (laughs) to live a life as strangers and pilgrims. They then confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Oh, let me tell you, friends, it's sort of embarrassing to be a stranger and pilgrim if you're not living, embracing the promises. Oh, but I don't like to be a peculiar people. That's what it feels like when you haven't embraced the promises. Let me tell you, when you embrace the promises, you don't even... The fact that you're living the way God wants you to live, it doesn't matter what people think. The first command of the everlasting gospel of Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, is to fear God. And I've become convinced, it's very simple, it's not a matter of terror or fear or being afraid of God, it's simply the fear of God as opposed to the fear of man. We naturally are people pleasers. The first step in us becoming faithful and preparing for the last days is for us to have a change of heart that god can work in us and by the way jeremiah 32 and verse 40 god promises he will put his fear in our hearts it's not something we do for ourselves that means we come to we come to be more concerned about god's approval than man's approval yeah we may dress a little differently look a little differently live a little differently we might do the not to do the things the world does it be it's, it's it's a burden it's a burden to be a stranger and a pilgrim unless you've been persuaded of the promises and embraced them. Once you have become persuaded of the promises and embraced them, listen, it's no burden to please Jesus in the way you live your life. It's no surprise that that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination among, uh, in God's eyes, as Jesus said it's no it's no it's no surprise that the world thinks differently than god thinks oh what i don't know about you but i need to be a spiritual descendant of abraham i need to have this experience this experience of of this progression of of hebrews chapter 11 verse 13 verse 14 says for they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country their focus was on the prize their focus was on the better land the better country with the with the 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 the, the, the permanent dwelling in all of eternity If they had been focused on the things around them, if they had been focused on the sacrifices that they were called to make for God, if they had been focused on the things that they had left behind in Ur of the Chaldees or back in Egypt, it says in verse 15, and truly, if they had been mindful of that from which they came out, they might have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore, I love this. Oh, Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For He has prepared for them a city. Oh, don't you want that experience? Don't you want that experience with God? A, A personal relationship with God? God says, those are my people. I'm proud of them. They're mine. We're like this. We're tight. Because they believe what I say. They think I mean my promises. They've claimed them for their own you know, in fact, all of those in Hebrews 11 died in faith, not having received the promises. I want you to skip down to verse 39. These all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. What does it, say when, what does it mean when it says they haven't received the promises? Well, they're resting in their graves. That's what it means, except for a couple of them that have been raised or um, translated. Um <coughs> They're resting in their graves. They haven't received the promises. And then it says that they without us should not be made perfect. Do you know that they are still waiting? I believe this is especially an applicable text for those of us living after 1844. Do you remember what we studied yesterday morning? What is God waiting for? Is He waiting for the Pope in Rome or the President in Washington? He's not, is He? He's waiting for his people. And God, having provided some better thing for us, it says, that they without us should not be made perfect. Abraham is re- resting in his grave, waiting for the time when there will be in 2015 or 16, or hopefully in the very near future, a whole group of people who do the works of Father Abraham. Amen. Who having seen the promises afar of off, become persuaded of them, embrace them and then are not afraid to call themselves strangers and pilgrims. And then, having experienced what Abraham experienced, Abraham himself can be resurrected, and we can all receive the promises together. Oh, what a wonderful God we serve. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, I just want to thank you today that you've given to us the example of the life of Abraham. I can only imagine how hard it must have been to leave his family behind. Some of us have left family. Some of us have been separated by loved ones. We've been called to go into a place where we didn't we didn't understand. It was a new adjustment. Some of us are yet to be called into that. You're going to call some of these families to go places and do things they may not fully understand. But Lord, it's only because they we need that work of detachment. So that we can have a work of attachment, Lord. More than anything else this morning, my heart wants to be attached to Jesus. Amen. I pray that you would detach it from those things that would separate me from Him. I pray that you would work in my life and the life of each one who's bowed here praying in your presence today. That you would work a work of of uh, not just seeing the promises afar of off, but that you would help us to be fully persuaded of them that you would help us to embrace them, make those promises of God the very fabric of our being, of our thinking, of our living, of our decision-making. So that once being fully persuaded of them and embracing them, Lord, we can be those strangers and pilgrims here on this earth because we want to be citizens of that heavenly land. We want to live in that place, that city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Oh, Lord, we want to be citizens there. Help us to be strangers and pilgrims here. Help us to do the works of our father Abraham. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.